believe me or your lying eyes, you know? And at some point where there's a denial of just basic reality here that like, this is a corrupting pursuit. I, if I sound like some moralistic preacher, it's, it's because they keep breaking in <laughs> and stealing things. They're stealing from each other. They can't wait until they die off. One of these guys has a nickname, The Undertaker, because he's the first one that shows up at some widow's home to buy this shit up before the rest of the community finds out. They're waiting for some addict to fall off the wagon so that they can buy what they want. But they're mad at me for writing about it. Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. This week, it's the second part of our fascinating book club interview with Kirk Wallace Johnson, the author of the best-selling The Feather Thief, about the heist of bird feathers from the British Natural History Museum by an obsessive American fly tire. Johnson comes across the story whilst fly fishing in Texas and looking for a new direction in his life after suffering from PTSD due to time spent in Iraq with USAID. He details how he followed the story bit by bit uncovering the sometimes nefarious online world of classic fly tires, which ultimately led to him confronting Edwin Rist, the man behind the heist. Continuing our conversation, Kirk explains why he chose not to reveal the name that Rist now goes by. He's performing under a different name. And, you know, I like I did not, you know, I always feel like the need to say this, but like I had to kind of balance some, I don't know, ethical responsibilities. Ethics isn't the right word, but like I wasn't writing this book to try to like ruin Edwin's life. And so I, the, part of me was like, hey, the, the justice system has said its piece i don't agree with it uh but you know being aware of the kind of vigilante tendencies of social media when i was writing the book i did not want there to be this stampede to 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 try to like uh ruin him over this which is why i didn't say what is uh the name he's performing with is but on the flip side I, i don't think you get to do something that bad that wrong and then also uh have a a right to anonymity or that no one has a right to understand what happened or what what you know what what happened to the rest of those birds either and so that that was part of the i think balancing act were you surprised at the success of the feather chief kirk yeah i have been i mean it's you know it's this it's i think it actually this week turns five years old and um it's still selling as much every week as it as it did when it first came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's in I, I like a, Italian and Russian are coming out at this this year. I think it's in maybe twenty languages or something. Um, and um, and and I'm now um, working on the adaptation of it uh, into a, a limited series um, for for Universal. So that's. Um, I think there's a there's an element to this story that I think the readers have picked up on in the same way that I connected with the story and that there's some there's some degree of escapism in this story. It's a, it takes you into this hmm. kind of crazy subculture that no one's ever heard of before. Um it takes you through a sweep of a couple hundred years of history. And there also is this like whole craze in true crime right now. And this happens to be a, a true crime kind of thriller that doesn't involve really brutal, gory crime. Um, and so I think there's a lot of people that have embraced it for that too. Um, but it's, you know, at the same time, it's like a 
it's not like an empty calories book. You know what I mean? It's there's mm. it's still wrestling with something hopefully more profound uh, than than just what happened that night at the museum. Can I ask you, you one thing? Just, Sorry, so Yeah, just to ask you one thing without because I don't want to give too much away. Uh, Aspergers, yes or no? <laughs> um, <laughs> or can you say? Or should you know? No, I you know look the the I think it's it's. I always feel that like that was one of the hardest chapters to write in the book because I wanted it to, I did not want somebody to think that I was being insensitive um, uh, to that possibility or to that community, but I've, I've gone pretty deep into it. And people with, people with, we say Asperger's here, but Asperger's like they, you don't lose your moral compass if you have it. If anything, they're, they have a heightened sense and a heightened awareness of right and wrong. So in the interview, I think it was maybe like four or five hours into the interview, we finally broached that, that point. And I said to him something uh, to the effect of like, I don't want to seem like a jerk or insensitive, but like, you don't seem like you have Asperger's to me. Like he would, he was of, of the, of all of the interviews, he was the most formidable opponent in 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 this book he would see lines of attack six questions in advance and and very artfully like step around them if i was if i was if i asked him something and he offered an answer if i didn't have a perfect poker face if my brow furrowed or if i smirked he would change on the he would alter he would uh, he would read that and adjust it um, these are, there's of course, like there are stereotypical presentations of it, if, of Asperger's or now autism spectrum disorder, but I, I raised some of those and he, and he, I said, you know, you're like, I know it's not limited to just this, but you're making eye contact. You're reading the subtext of my questions. Another thing is that you, you had meaningful relationships, long-term romantic relationships, which is another thing, another marker of people who have it, have it, maybe more difficulty with it. And he said, like, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something to the effect of, like, I became what I needed to become. And he said, so what are the, the, the markers? And he's like, it's repetitive motion. It's avoiding eye contact. And before my eyes and my wife's eyes, he started going like this, <laughs> uh, kind of mimicking how he was behaving in the interview with Simon Baron Cohen. Um, and so you know, and who Baron Cohen, who's also, I don't think a big fan of mine, but he did finally acknowledge that yes, it could be faked. Um, and so, um, you know, this is something that it, it's something that I, I try to be very, uh, sensitive, but honest about that. Like in one of the interviews I had with an, uh, an expert on this, who was actually involved in the, in Edwin's case, she said, well, yes, but there's also a, a part of the evaluation where the parents are brought in and the parents are asked questions. Uh, this is Baron Cohen's assessment. And so I found the assessment. I turned to the parents tab and it's like, you know, did your, did your child have difficulty making friends when they were young? One, zero to four. Did they do things in a repetitive way? Zero to four. And I asked my wife, like, there's always this kind of, uh, you know, 
you know, whenever I tell the story, I, I, people get awkward, but it's, I'm just being honest. And I think if people are honest with themselves, they, they would land in the same place. I asked my wife when, when our son was born, if our son did something this stupid, where he's facing possibly a decade in, in prison, and we had an ability to put a finger on the scale to say, you know, we'll, get, we'll, we'll help, but you, you know, hopefully you'll learn your lesson another way. But like, would we, would we lie a little bit? Would we say, oh yeah, no, he never had any friends. And the truth is there was zero yeah. hesitation. Of course we would. I don't know if that's what happened in this case. I don't even know if the, the this woman was just surmising, but I, I think, I don't even know who answered the, that assessment or whatever. But the point being that, there is a, um, you know, he basically skated from any punishment because of this loophole. And it's tricky as an American to speak about this, too, because it's not, you know, I think he should have probably done some time, but we we throw everyone in prison forever. You know what I mean? So our calibration of what is appropriate sentencing is completely, I fully acknowledge, is not the correct one. Um, but it, it felt it felt wrong here that that because a that this is will be strange to your audience that hasn't read the book, but that because a a grave robber in Bristol who had autism stole some bones a decade earlier, that Edwin was able to basically avoid any prison time. It seems it seems odd. Pe- you know, people are six months after the sentencing. Someone from the Dead Zoo gang, another Ireland connection. Uh, from from Rathkeel. the Rathkeel uh, Rovers, right? So <laughs> one of the one of the rovers sent somebody in to the Natural History Museum in Tring to steal rhino horn because they were behind a, a rash of thefts over the over the late you know aughts and early 2010s, and that guy stole, sawed off a rhino horn. It turns out he stole a bunch of plaster because the museum knew about the dead zoo gang and they had already swapped out the real rhino horn for plaster. And he went to prison for two years for stealing plaster. So, you know, I just look at it like there's someone who stole from the same museum and stole something that is absolutely without debate worthless, who had a far harsher sentence. I just don't think he had as effective lawyers. Or or didn't swing back and forth in the interview. Mm-hmm. And avoid eye contact. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. How did you manage to get the book published? Because you said how the publisher said thanks, no thanks. Did you lean on the Attenborough connection? Because I would. <laughs> That's what I did. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, so what happened was um, at the um, after my first publisher passed on it, I was then sort of liberated from the first look deal they had had their first look and passed on it and then i just i had this i still have it i'll i'll be with her for as long as i'm i write but my my literary agent then uh was free to take the proposal out um and the other publishers like it was we sent it out on a i think a Friday morning and by Monday I was in New York and it was just there people people were putting bids in on the book without even meeting me um I think they I think they saw um the kind of strangeness of the story but also um that I had really turfed it out at that point I mean I think 
I, so I, the, the book I sold, I got the book deal in 2015 and I heard about it um, from Spencer in the fall of 2010 or 11. I'm trying to remember now. Um, and so, um, so I was already, you know, I wasn't doing full time, but that was, I was already well into like I had, I still now have the only printouts of all of these forum posts and things that, that don't exist anymore. Um, and so, so how, much of, how much of the research would you say you would have had done by the time you pitched it? Um, I think I was, I would say I'm, I was probably, uh, I don't know, maybe 60% of the way there, but you know, it's funny because I was going to all of the, um, in the, in the proposal, I had, I had it broken down by like chapter by chapter and there was one, you know, chapter 18 or whatever, but it, all it said is in which I sit down face to face with Edwin Rist. And all the publishers were like, well, what's he like? When, when are you doing the conversation? When are you doing that interview? And um, I just, I was totally bluffing. I, he had been saying no to me for three or four years at that point. Um, but I kept saying, oh, we're, you know, we're talking, we're just kind of negotiating it or whatever. And then, um, uh, you know, just to my luck, like about a, a month later, like he agreed to it. So, but, you know, it's a, it's um it's in some way, like, you know, like there's some people I've, I've noticed online that they're, they complain that the book doesn't have this really overwhelming, satisfying ending. Uh, That's the beauty I, of it. Like <laughs> where I kick in the door and find it all or whatever. And Lord knows I tried, I tried to, to figure out where all of them went but it's it's more honest this way it's the truth that like we, you know these things are this is a going to be a long felt um blow to that museum and to 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 the scientific record and all of this and so and and i think i'm certain that either they've all been chopped to bits or there are people that might even hear this that that know exactly which drawer in in which which chest on their fly tying desk there's a there's a train bird in there you know and it's their own little it's become even more valuable to them i don't know i'm speculating but um but um but you know it, it was a very difficult thing to try to figure out how does this end how do i stop writing <laughs> uh because it's just it just kept going and going i was gonna say like but you know like the we could we could talk about the new book but like i your audience is they they want feather thief i'm guessing so I, yeah, I don't, but i but i do i do want to ask you about it it has fishermen in the title it, it, it does, yeah. <laughs> so so please do tell us about the new book fishermen and the dragon which has been had fantastic reviews and has been hugely well received so just tell us give us a bit of background to that well the the real quick version of it it's it's in some ways kind of a connecting to this prior life of mine but um but it involves a clash between Vietnamese refugees and the Ku Klux Klan. This is a true story um, uh, along the Texas Gulf Coast in the late 70s and the early 80s. And so after after the fall of Saigon, we resettled hundreds of thousands of refugees. A lot of the Vietnamese had been fishermen back home. And so in trying to rebuild their lives, they started buying trawlers and crab boats and things and it was a particularly rough 
moment in the economy. So there were a lot of white fishermen that were happy to unload these crappy boats on them. Um, but then the Vietnamese just became so good at it, um, finding little efficiencies, fishing and in, in weather that white fishermen wouldn't normally go out in using family members as deckhands and all of this, that they became kind of an economic threat. And the white fishermen freaked out um, and they ran to the governor of Texas and begged for a refugee ban. And when that failed, they brought the Klan in and the Klan started firebombing Vietnamese boats and homes in a very kind of ghastly public campaign where the Vietnamese were given 90 days to, to get out or else face blood, blood, blood. And so this is a, uh, a turf war over fishing grounds, even though the Vietnamese had every right to be there. Um, but the Vietnamese kind of astonishingly, even though they had plenty of um, experience fighting, um, chose to put their faith in the U.S. Constitution, and they actually stood their ground and sued the Klan in what has become a pretty historic case. But they sued to assert their rights as, as fishermen, but also uh, it broke apart the Klan's militia in Texas. Um, and so uh, that was another, you know, there's, there's a whole other angle to it, which is that this was a turf war, but they, this has now become the most polluted water in America um, because of the petrochemical industry. And so all of these, there were all of these toxic dumps into the bays and oil spills and things that were killing off the catch. But the white fishermen who worked at these plants in the off season looked at all of that and they said, no, the real problem is this tiny number of refugees that's coming. And so, um, you know, they kind of debased themselves in this racist campaign to drive the Vietnamese out of there, uh, and they failed, and and the the coastline is still no uh, particularly safe place to be. I think the cancer rates there are something like 170 times the the rate of the rest of the country. I was able to tell who worked at what plant by the type of cancer that they had, um, and so. But you know what's funny? It's like I got I had a number of. Um, uh, confessions on the record from Klansmen that set fire to boats and, and burnt homes. Um, and my wife was like, well, okay, it's either going to be a fly tire that gets us or a Klansman. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but, um, but no, so it was a, uh, so anyways, that, that book is out. That one is also supposed to be turned into a, a TV series as well. Um, uh, so that, that, that's kind of underway, but, um, but the, the truth is that it was such a um, tough story that near the end, when I was going through like all the final proofs on the book, I remember kind of complaining to my wife about like just how tired I was that of just reading this racist garbage and all, and all these all these interviews with these guys. I was like, I missed a feather thief. Like, I, I want to do the next project. I want to do something like Feather Thief again. And and then lo and behold, it it like it is the feather. Like, I'm doing the adaptation of it. So, um, so, so yeah. So I, I don't know if it. If, I mean, it's is, just it's short it, summary. But yeah, no, it sounds fascinating. And I'm, I'm was the research. How did you find the research to that compared to the Feather Thief in the sense of this was an, an old dead story 
was it like I, yeah i know there's still modern links but it was for yeah i mean the thing the thing that you know it's funny like comparing the two the the feather thief fisherman and the dragon i i would have all these revelations and people would confess to things that they shouldn't have been talking to me about but the the revelations were always horrifying and depressing the feather thief revelations like there is something horrifying about the heist but it's it's more in the shock vein than horror you know what i mean um that it's just there's so many times where i'm like okay there's a you know like i i, I can't remember if this made it into the book but there's one guy in this community that has struggled with with uh like drug abuse his whole life and he happens to be sitting on a very nice collection of of skins and feathers and other materials and a lot of guys told me that they wait for him to fall off the wagon like they get excited because he starts selling this stuff off to feed his habit um and so there are these things where you're you're like you know i would come up one day i'd be like well okay there's a there's a end times cult dude in south africa who has private poachers to kill birds of paradise in, in New Guinea. And he admitted he's got the birds and, but he won't give them back. Or there's a guy who that drug addict, I've, I've heard from several people that, um, and I didn't write it in the book because I, in part, I'm just like, I'm not trying to make everyone's lives miserable, but that I, I had heard that he had chopped up, <laughs> chopped up exotic feathers to snort with his coat but if you read the forum is gone now but it was i i think i made this point in the book they use the language of addiction mm. it's like a drug to them they say that they they use the same kind of like what it does to your neural pathways and all this the thrill of finally holding an, an, an authentic you know you know, red rough fruit crow feather or whatever, how it feels like, you know? And so um, the, the fact that there's an, a direct uh, confluence with with drugs is like not surprising to me, you know? You talk about the, 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 the stories and it just reminded me there, the one that I found really sad was you mentioned of a guy who had to go in for a brain operation and had a, mm. had a pet blue chatterer. And two guys turned up and persuaded his girlfriend to sell the pet blue chatter and they kill it. Yeah. And you know what? One of those guys, one of those guys who I do not name in the book. Um, one of those guys is the guy that that gave the death threat to Spencer. Oh, uh, no. Nice. Uh, nice. So, um, so yeah, so, you know, but they're, they're all saints and Edwin was the only bad apple here and there's nothing yeah. to look at and everyone just <laughs> move on and this hobby's fine. And it was just a one-off or whatever, you know, mm. there's some point where it's like, you know, there were, I mean, there were so many points in this investigation where it's like the, the, the responses I got from these guys essentially amounted to, you know, that old line, like, who are you going to believe me or your lying eyes? You know, and at some point where there's a denial of just basic reality here that like the, the, this is a corrupting pursuit. And I, I, I if I sound like some moralistic preacher, it's it's because they're 
they keep breaking in <laughs> and stealing things. They're stealing from each other. They can't wait until they die off. One of these guys has a nickname, The Undertaker, because he's the first one that shows up at some widow's home to buy this shit up before the rest of the community finds out. They're waiting for some addict to fall off the wagon so that they can buy what they want. But they're mad at me for writing about it, you know? So, um, Kirk, not do a sequel. I know. I'm, I'm, well, I'm telling I think, you. <laughs> tell me, I think, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think the, the the series, if it all goes according to plan, is sort of where I'm channeling all this. So there, you 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 will absolutely see someone snorting a feather at the end of the pilot. <laughs> that would make um, Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul even. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that would put that in the halfpenny place. Like I'm just picturing some dudes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's a um, um, you know, like there's a. There's a part of me where I'm like, you know, I there's a I can admire, like look, I mean, I have a I have a I have a fly tie I have a fly tying vice right in front of me. I'm horrible at it, but I can tie it, I can tie like an elk hair caddis and like catch things on it. And but if I'm tie, I'm using it for functionality. I can admire I tied a salmon fly under Spencer's guidance. Uh it took, you know eight hours and it was a you know complete shit show um but i so i can admire the artistry of it but there is some part of my brain that um i will never care if it's four raps or five because i i view it i view oh, these Kirk, 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 Kirk. i view these as, <laughs> as like some as a, as a play a function you know there's something i have a more utilitarian approach to it all it's not the, the romance behind it um but um but i and then i keep coming back to this you know at some point this just becomes like an existential in the most literal sense of it like what is real anyways because they they call a a pheasant feather or a you know chicken saddle feather they call that fake Mm -hmm. and 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 but it's real but they but they it's not it's not the real thing because Kelson didn't mention this or Blacker didn't mention that or Francis or you know so it's like but it's so there's a part of me where I'm like oh there's something cool about like connecting to you know they're connecting to a time in fairly recent human history that basically like predated the industrial revolution that predated the human impact on on our climate back when everything was in abundance when there was still even like some skepticism about extinction and whether whether the things would ever run out you know and so i can I, that 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 romance resonates uh with me i understand that um but they i think when you then marry that to a marketplace of a of bragging rights where these guys could be quite rough on each other over what how whether someone ties well or not or whether this fly is done properly when you start braiding status through all of that and status envy um you know it's like it starts to become a little toxic uh and you know it's like it's a little tough for me because i i get sent these I've been I, I deleted my Facebook account, but I, I keep I get sent 
screenshots from the private groups. And I, I see these 10 year olds, 11 year olds that are, you know, being brought up in the same cult that Edwin was brought up in, you know, um, that, well, all right. Yeah. Well, you're, you're, you're quite good at tying with subs, but you know, that's not the real thing. <laughs> and if you want the real thing, if you ever want to tie Traherne, you know, you gotta, you're going to need 20,000 bucks or whatever, you know? Um, and, and I think there's something where, you know, I'm like, guys, just take a step back and maybe reassess here. I, I, I try to get Orvis cause I've become friends with Tom Rosenbauer. But I was like, you guys should sponsor a big classic fly tying tournament where it's some obscenely valuable um, prize for the one who ties the best with subs. And you can have a whole, like, you know, all the all the greatest fly, salmon fly tires in the world and, and see if you can dupe them, you know. Um, but you, Tom, to Tom's point, which is correct, I mean, they're, they've, you know, they're already putting their money where their mouth is on all kinds of like environmental things. It's not Orvis's problem to yeah. solve or what should come from within the community. But, um, um, but the fact that the, the guys who have tried to like, at least push a little sustainability into this or let's embrace substitutes, like they're all getting kind of flamed out of it. Um, it you know, seems kind of damning. I can't um, help. I can't help but think Kirk, if they um, stood in a river, Mm -hmm. to a rising fish it might solve a lot of problems i agree and you know like that's funny because there's like the there's this huge split in terms of i i go into fly fly shops all over the u.s when i'm fishing and like every one of those guys has read this book and they love it they're not anyone who's picked up a fly rod and reel can see this for what it is to your point that like and and so it's it's the ones that have are quite far from the water's edge. I think that are the most threatened by it. Um, um, that I know, I know anglers that do tie classics and they do like to use the, the feathers that are, you know, the exotic feathers, but they'll, they'll willingly tell me like, I know it's, I know it's nonsense and I would never fish these things. It's just kind of a, um, you know, yeah, it's a hobby or whatever. Mm forgotten entirely about this but listen Kirk every guest we've on the show we ask him a final question ask them a final question and you've been forewarned so hopefully you know about it uh, or thought about it what has been your most memorable fish on the fly I, I have been thinking about it I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you it with a bit of an asterisk uh, because it doesn't involve a fly but it's 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 fishing. Um, but I was in, after the book came out, I was in, of all places, I was in Thailand. Um, I went birding with Jonathan Franzen, the novelist, uh. who he, he's a, a a very well-known birder, but he, he, he liked the book and he invited me to join him. So I, was, I spent, I don't know, two or three weeks going through these forests. And I was not a birder before I'd become a little bit of one now. But there was one day... I don't know, 10 days in it that we were in this uh, national park, like deep in it. And there was this fruit tree next to a pond. And there were these tropical birds. I forgot what, what they were, bulbuls, I think. And 
Franzen and some of my other friends that were there, they, they were like at hour two, just parked staring at this tree. And as much as I like birds, I like, I started to get bored. And I noticed though, that every time the birds shook a little fruit loose and it landed in the pond, there would be this thrashing in the water. And there were these great big Thai carp. I don't know the name of the, the fish. Um, but this hunter part of my brain got activated and I was like, I want, I want to see if I can catch one of these things. I didn't, I didn't obviously have any equipment. So actually I have it here. Hang on. Um, um, so I went into the forest and I found a, a vine, a little vine wrapped around a tree trunk. It's about, this is probably 10 feet long. And I gently un unwound it from the trunk. And then I took, I had a can of Coke and I, I bent the, the, the tab off and then broke and then separated it so that there's a little bit of like a, a hook there. I don't know if you can see it, but yeah. Um, and then I, I went and picked up one of the berries and just kind of speared it on the, on the tab, um, and it, it took three casts and I pulled like about a 21 inch carp out. <laughs> and I was, like, <laughs> I was like, I'll never, I'll never forget this. This is like a very, uh, and then I had to quickly wrap this up and jam it in my pocket because somebody tipped off the, the like park service, uh, cops or whatever. Cause they started driving down. Uh, and so I didn't, I mean, I put the fish back, but it was this sort of like, um, you know, to me, like the, the happiest moments I've had fishing are the ones when you don't have what you need and you have to kind of make do with what you have and make an adjustment. And, and it's, and when it works, it's just like you've uh, it's like, you know, deciphering some enigma code or something, you know what I mean? Uh, so like, I mean, I, I have this makeshift, uh, you know, line hanging on my wall because every time I see it, it just it brings me joy. So, anyways, it's not a fly, but I hope that works for. Uh, for no, uh, so, you know what it is? It's true fishing. A truly yeah. memorable. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, 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 I wonder, does, does Jonathan Franzen and the other bird watchers think you're completely nuts? Uh, yeah, you know it's funny because he's he's like we've become very close friends, and um, and he's a, uh, you know, he. He's interested. I just sent him a note the other day because um, one of my friends in Los Angeles is the director of the Moore Lab of Zoology, which has the largest uh, uh, bird collection, uh, skin collection in Los Angeles. And they're getting rid of their hundred year old specimen cases because uh, they've just upgraded their lab. And so I'm like, my wife doesn't want me to get one, but I want to, I want to get one or two or whatever. But I sent it to friends and saying, Hey, do you want one of these? And he was just like, I'm, he likes real bird, like live birds. You know what I mean? Uh, so he, I think there's, a, he recognizes that my, there's an overlap uh, in our sort of obsessive tendencies, uh, but that, uh you know, for him, it's about going out and seeing these things in the wild as they currently are. But it, but that that book sort of forged a friendship between us, which I'm I'm really uh, grateful for. Well, um, I have to say, I, Kirk, I'm so grateful for your time this evening. Um, oh, it's my pleasure. It's been an absolute brilliant chatting to you. It's been so interesting from Fallujah, Iraq, 
the feather thief um the fisherman and the dragon um i true fishing yeah exactly exactly i anybody i meet that i know is into fly fishing i say to them have you read the feather thief there was i was salmon fishing this morning there was five six other people there i told them i was going to interview and they're like who's that so i gave them the kind of synopsis of the feather thief i said you have to go out and buy it tom i said i said you have to read it you have to anybody i've met i said you have to read it i actually think um your style reminds me of patrick radden o'keefe And I yeah, think, he's a, he's. A, I mean, I I would I, I'm happy to be in that company. He's an incredible yeah. author. So like, it just delving deep, going into that storytelling, and I just I can't recommend it highly enough. It's the natural history heist of the century. I think is a brilliant subtitle for it, The Feather Thief. Um, and your new book is uh, The Fisherman Dragon, which I'm looking forward to reading too. Um, Kirk, all I can say is thank you so much for your time. It's just been absolutely brilliant. And um, I am going to go back and read your book once more again after all this. Well, thank you for having me. And if I if I ever get over there, I'll I'll reach out to you guys. Um I'm uh I'm I'm hoping to be Attenborough in the letter just told me he's like, come come by and come say hi when you're in London next. And of course it made me want to get on a plane right away to go, to go, go hang out with them again. But, um, but, um, oh, and you know, there's one thing that, uh, just, I mean, it may not be relevant, but just we're talking about the kind of meaningful things that have happened since the book has come out. But when I was in England, I had an extra day built into the tour because, um, I went down to the Southern coast and I spent the day with Alfred Russell Wallace's grandson who was 93 years old at the time. And for those who haven't read the book, but it was, this guy is a Titan. He's the one that gathered up a lot of these birds. He's sort of famous for being not famous, but he independently figured out evolution through natural selection at the same time as Darwin, but we all credit Darwin with it now. And it was his birds that were stolen. And that's part of the reason why I think this became a book and not maybe just a magazine piece. But I went down there and um, after a couple hours, I asked him if if he had anything of his grandpa's that in his home there. And he brings me down this hallway to this kind of otherwise empty room and there's a dresser in it. Um, and I, I this will only be make sense for those in the book. But when I pulled open the drawer there was a there was a sheaf of correspondence like darwin and other letters and things but then he's like look underneath that and beneath it was the the pocket watch and the sextant that he saved from the burning boat which is what the book opens on uh and then next to that was the um like the field glasses that he used to sight the birds of paradise for the first time and so I, i went out into the backyard and was peering through them and it was just kind of like a magical moment and so i think you know, in some ways it like it hits that same vein of like part of this book is about wrestling with who we are as humans and our relationship with a natural world and with an earth that is changing quickly. And I think some people kind of try to grip onto something in the past that seems more constant or whatever. And so in, in some ways for me, like there was this magic too of like connecting with that moment through this object from from back then. So I, I get it. It's just the difference is I did not steal it from from Wallace's grandson. <laughs> uh, anyways, I don't know if that's if, if that resonates at all. But our thanks to Kirk Wallace Johnson for joining us on the show, and you can buy the Feather Thief online. Get your hands on a copy. I can only really highly recommend it. It's 
Great read. Really good read. And then don't forget to rate, review and follow the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Plus, you can keep up to date on IrelandOnTheFly.com as well as on Instagram. And myself and Tom will be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland.